0: Welcome to Just a GP. This week, we've got Charlotte Hespi. We've got the joy of interviewing Todd Cameron about being just a GP, not, who runs general practices with an emphasis on quality practice. So, hi, Todd. How are you?
1: Excellent. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, so, I owned um in the general practice kind of ownership uh, game, if you like, from 2003 was the first practice, which was called... Carolyn Springs Medical Centre, I'd always always worked as a GP in the west of Melbourne. And setting that one up, that went quite well. And around about 18 months later, we had an opportunity to grow the clinic. And it was kind of one of those things where if I didn't choose to take the next step and and take on a a bigger clinic and and just for the quantum involved in commitment financially, um, the initial clinic was, was five consulting rooms at the back of a pharmacy. From memory, it was around about 20 grand a year rent. The new place was, I think, about 12 rooms at the time, but it later expanded and was around about 200 grand in rent. And uh, I wish I kept the Google Map era because when you looked at it, quite literally, the road ended where the clinic was and there was dirt all around it. And I decided that I, I had to make a commitment there and then as to whether or not I wanted to grow and own multiple clinics or remain with the one that, that we had. And we'd done really well in 18 months. That that population was about 5,000, brand new suburb, and it ended up at completion being 25,000. So it was a really good sort of demographic wave to, to surf, as, as it were. We did take that, that second clinic and that also went very well. And then I decided that if you're going, if you're going to continue to hone and refine, you really need to do things again and again, and so uh, we got to setting up six clinics, all of which were greenfield. So uh, you know, you often need deeper pockets to start a greenfield, but you're not taking over somebody else's culture. So what happened was, eventually, I got to 2016. I had business partner all, all the way along as an accountant, and around about 2012, I inherited another business partner who's an investment banker. So very different ownership mix to what you typically see. And in 2016, our two largest clinics were the first businesses in a ASX shell entity. So, you know, a business that's that's failed, uh, but still has a slot on the ASX, uh, has some intrinsic value because it costs you somewhere between $800,000 and a million dollars to set up an ASX listed entity. And I was approached by a couple of people or rather the ownership team was approached and we determined that, yep, we'd have a go at that. As part of that, um, I became a director of that company, which was Zenitas. Uh, And Zenitas was taken privately in December of last year by a private equity takeout. So it's no longer a publicly listed company. As a result of that, I'm no longer a director of that entity. So I got to experience life on the inside of a an asx listed company that was operating in in mostly home care. So it wasn't just general practice, it was general practice was um, allied health. So they had nine GP clinics, about 65 allied health, primarily physiotherapy clinics, some home care and mobile services into aged care facilities. And that business at the time it was taken private was doing something north of $170 million in revenue. And as part of that role, I got to have a look at a lot of clinics along the way, doing some due diligence, et cetera. So a uh, fairly interesting journey and, and probably started when I was a kid. My dad was in insurance. I remember reading all these books laying around, you know, Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy, uh, all these business guys. And it probably had an impact on me, I think, at a at, um, later point in my career. So that's how I ended up there.
0: That sounds like a, a slightly different way from how People generally ended up in there, but it sounds as good a way as any. So before we go any further, what's been a good thing about this week for you? Uh,
1: so now I, I'm not doing any direct GP consulting at the moment. I'm still supervising GP registrars who, who haven't sacked me, but not doing as much face-to-face consulting. I'm doing some medical services for other um, other sectors. So my week now is a bit more creative than what it used to be as a GP, although although I, I must say I do very much enjoy general practice. The challenge for me was because of the other business interests that often required a bit more flexibility and creativity, it's very much in the urgent and important quadrant and could, tends to dominate everything else that you do. So my week mostly has been about creative work. So looking at a uh, distressed GP clinic to see if we can revive that it was one fun thing And also, I I do tend to mentor somewhere between sort of two and four GPs, investing sort of two or three hours a week in that part of giving back. And that's always interesting. I I really enjoy uh, what I love about general practice, the same thing I love about mentoring is solving puzzles and getting to understand people and actually not solving problems because the ideal scenario is much like general practice. Ideally, people solve their own problems because they're likely to know the right way to solve them. It's really just being a catalyst in that process, helping people see the same problem from a different perspective, perhaps.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Todd. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you entirely. What, I mean, it is, isn't it, the joy of, the, the, of being a problem solver is not necessarily solving the problem, it's getting somebody else to solve the problem for themselves in a way that they can really own and enjoy. Absolutely. For me, my week, my week is really complicated at the moment just because I'm sort of trying to juggle a few balls with college-type commitments as well as my own practice and uni-type stuff. But this week, the highlight's been going to the wedding of one of my colleagues who works with me in my Philippines um, phase of life. So she's been, she's an English doctor and originally from England, English doctors, moved out to Australia and became involved with Team Philippines as a tutor at Notre Dame Uni, came along and has come every single trip since that first one. And it's just been awesome having a really enthusiastic doctor who wants to come, loves teaching, and just will come along with me twice a year to the Philippines so that. She doesn't have, you know, to do the organising side that I do, but just knowing that she's there, she's going to be really reliable, and she's a great teacher, and she's so enthusiastic about the community. And she got married on the weekend, and I got to go, and it was just lovely,
1: wow. really lovely. Was that was that in Australia or was that in the Philippines?
0: No, no, no. She's she's an she works in Australia. She's okay. doing emergency physician training, and so it was local in Sydney. Well, it wasn't in Sydney. It was in Barrow, and uh, so. Meant for having to have a weekend trip out to Barrow, which is always cool, <laughs> lovely. Yeah, it's sort of nice, isn't it? When other sort of bits of your life mean that you end up getting to know people that you might not otherwise get to know. Absolutely. So, Todd, I'm really interested. I know that you are really passionate about quality general practice. So, it's when you're running your practices, you you aren't trying to do a formulaic sort of medical centre practice so I'm interested what does that mean you know if, if another doctor's standing there what what does what would that mean to them and how do you describe what running a practice that is aspiring to be a high quality practice means
1: yeah I, I think it's a really interesting question and, and my my attitude to it has changed over the years but I think When I first started, my philosophy was always really simple in running, owning, or working in any GP clinic. My rule was that I would be proud to be a patient within that practice myself. That just kind of meant that if friends or family ever arrived at that practice, that I wouldn't be concerned about who they saw or how they were treated. I think sometimes people approach this by trying to homogenize a practice. So... One thing that I would caution against, and I certainly tried, you know, when when you start your first GP clinic and you're sitting there and it's just you, it's like faulty towers, usually you recruit somebody like you because, you know, we like to work with people like us. And I actually think that's probably a really flawed approach. There's there's a fair bit of good work by McKinsey in, in the business world about the value of diversity. And I think that is also highly appropriate in gp clinics so i am for example as a gp a fairly slow methodical gp who who kind of ends up with more of the complex stuff because i enjoy it and to be frank if you had a clinic full of people like me it'd be a pain in the ass you know everyone would be running late um, and you know patients would be getting a bit frustrated there'd be no space to do the, the quick and easy things that are, that are necessary, you know, child with a sore ear or, or um, febrile patient, et cetera. And so you really need to have a common philosophy, but a willingness to take on a diverse group of people. And ideally from diverse backgrounds, I mean, ethnicity, gender, religion, you know, in every sense of the word, the greater the diversity you get in the practice, the better. The key to it is you have to have common shared values and this is the bit where i think people fall down often they employ or engage as contractors people around them that are like them and then you can fall um you can be susceptible to groupthink or they don't sort of analyze or come to some agreed common values and then it makes it much harder to make decisions because Values are kind of making a decision on the values in your clinic is, is really a lot like making a big meta decision. So once you settle on those values, my rule is you can have three to five, but no more and less is better than more. So three is better than five generally. Then you, you once you've settled on those, it, it really helps you to say yes and, and more importantly, no to things, you know, what you will and won't do in your practice, because those values obviously permit you or or ban you from doing things. And again, with that, my rule of thumb is pretty simple. If it's positive on one value and neutral on the other two, then you you need to bring it to a conversation. If there's any value that's impacted negatively by a decision, even if it's positive on the other values, it won't fly. And if it's positive on all the values, well, you you might ask to be polite, but pretty well, you get a a green light to enact anything that, that serves all of those values. The main caveat here is that you're not convincing yourself that, that a negative is actually neutral, that you haven't kind of done a post-rational justification for something. And I think, to, to be honest, that's the critical element that is often glossed over because people either assume their values are understood or they haven't really analysed them. or well, just kind of working from their personal values, which is not the same thing as their business values, although there may be a lot of overlap. And so I think then that allows you to kind of have conversations with, with doctors that are appropriate. And, uh, we probably did our work on values. uh, You know, I, I said, we started our first clinic in 2003. I reckon we went probably five to seven years without clearly clarifying those values. And as a result of that, uh, we had difficult times in the clinics and it took me a while to figure out exactly why that was but I can strongly recommend uh, investing some time in determining the values. And this is a lot of system two thinking. You know, it's really slow thinking. It's not about snap decisions or even things that you think might appeal to your patients. And in setting your values, you you need to have a clear consideration of what I call patient avatars. But patient avatars are really the groups of patients that you see in, in high frequency or that you kind of have a special interest in. In my case, our clinics are built to the needs of young families and people with chronic or serious medical um, or chronic or complex medical problems. So typically that would be, you know, young families are fairly obvious and usually you'll have the mother as the head of that family as they attend. Um, Not always, but certainly the majority of the time. And with the chronic disease, you're really talking about sort of 45 plus and male and female is probably more evenly split. So our clinics are very much designed to meet the needs of those three groups of people and the rest kind of fits in around it and to be blunt if nobody came from any of the other groups i wouldn't be that fast if middle-aged men complain about the clinic didn't meet their needs well that's fine because i'm not designing it to meet their needs and and of course you're going to end up with work cover and and third party payers uh, in your clinic tac or whoever that might be in your state But again, the clinic is not geared primarily to the needs of those people. So I'm really trying to cater to the people that are the length and the strength of the business. And I think that all feeds back into quality. And then the other parts that that are important are I think having a view of what quality looks, feels like and tastes like maybe in your practice. You know, what what does it mean? Um, Can
0: I interrupt at that point, Todd? So I'm interested in where you're aligning sort of values and what I would call culture yep. to be quality. Mm-hmm. So I, I get that you need to have a really good understanding of what value proposition you're putting out there and therefore, you know, what it is that you're wanting to achieve. So bring me along with you as to where then that sets what quality looks like, because, I, I mean, I agree with you, but I think that there's also a difference in that you can set out to have a particular feel and value proposition, but it may still not actually equate with what I would see as being quality care.
1: Yeah, well, it's an excellent point. And I think it comes back to probably the main reference for this would be Simon Sinek with the why. Uh, quality can easily be a checkbox process. And if you're not really sure why you're delivering what you're delivering and to who you're delivering the service, then it it becomes somewhat esoteric about what quality is, because it kind of doesn't have a meaning to you, I guess. So I think that kind of the tip of the, the triangle, if you like, about how we get to quality, if we've got quality up the top, the foundation layers are very much around understanding your patient avatars, getting the right culture in your business, and we've heard all these sayings, Drucker saying, you know, that, that culture eats strategy for breakfast, et cetera. You know, the strategy part is kind of the, the what, like that's the, that's the what are we doing? And I think it's easy to layer that on a clinic with poor culture. But what you find in my experience is that you get wild variability. So my, my business philosophy is that Business is a lot like elite sport. You have two jobs. Well, the first job is to improve the quality of your game, to elevate your skill, talent, and execution. And, and the second part possibly is more important, but that's narrowing the gap between your best and worst days. And if, if you look at that, and you know, I wouldn't ordinarily invoke Donald's as an example. However, it is an example of quality in that it's a highly reproducible experience. You know, people don't go to McDonald's for the best hamburgers. They go there because they're not gonna be shocked or surprised by the experience because the, you, you wouldn't really know the best and worst days at of McDonald's because it's not likely that what they produce is any different. So what lesson can we take from that? Well, I think what we can take from it is consistency is a measure of quality. You know, If we are uh, making sure that the environment inspires excellence that you know, we minimize interruptions, for example, and we have patients well prepped and well trained. You know the waiting rooms clean and tidy. Patients come in in a better state of mind. Then, then that all feeds into quality. They're all they're all the kind of foundation elements that I think can lead to quality. I actually don't think you can do quality if you have the the skill set of quality, but you lack all of those other ingredients uh, without the foundation.
0: I hundred hundred percent am with you. I suppose the challenge that I see for a lot of practices well, for GPs really, is how do you take everybody along with you? You know, it's it's all and well to sort of as the practice owner to have those aspirations, but what does that mean for your team and how do they engage with it so that it matters to them as well? Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah, look, again, I think these are things that,
0: that are uh, uh, excellent questions that are kind of faced by all of
1: us. And again, I, I'd say medicine and business in general is more like an elite sport than a family you know business teams are not about unconditional love they're about roles goals and performance and when we talk about taking everyone along for the ride i actually think you've got to be okay with not taking everyone along for the ride and if you're serious about it so you know if you inherited a team that's on the bottom of the ladder you'd be pretty ambitious thinking you could get to winning the grand final with the same team. You, you would recognise that you need to turn over some of that team. Some people were given the opportunity to improve and they may, but you know, the likelihood is that you're going to turn over a few cattle. And I think I think the same thing is true in general practice. You know, if you're serious about reforming quality, the reality is there are going to be people on your team that you may enjoy as people and as colleagues, but if they're not part of your philosophy, to maintain integrity, you have to call it out. Now, that also means you've got to be comfortable with others calling you if you fail in delivering on the values. That's really important. You know, you, you need the capacity to self-reflect and have others tell you what they think without uh, fear of repercussion. But I, I often joke about this and say, I, I think you're coming of age as a GP clinic owner is firing the highest earning doctor. And I've done that twice now and I did it because they weren't aligned to the values and I don't hire doctors like that anymore that, that are not aligned to the behaviours and values of the business because it, I know that at some point in time I'm just going to have to let them go because they're not going to serve the patient, the community that in the manner that I would like.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's, it's so important, isn't it, that you're all – working with that same ethos I've certainly found that in my practice is that being a good doctor isn't enough when you're working in a team you all have to actually be working for the same particular goals and be able to work together and be aligned in where where it is you're wanting to go which is what you started off with in terms of setting those values as your starting point but then it goes back to then, as the practice owner, who do you then look for as your fellow GPs to work with? And that they obviously need to be aligned with that as well.
1: Yeah, I think so. And, and I mean, you know, to be honest, Charlotte, you're probably better to answer that question because you've been a, a passionate contributor to quality over many years. And I imagine that that must have caused some friction in the clinic at times. So I'm interested to, to know and I'm sure the audience is interested to know how, how you managed that, what your journey was like with that part of uh, general practice.
0: Yeah, it is interesting. I think that goes back to some of those things that when you go and do leadership training, I think it's talking about and it's all about how we collaborate generally. It's about being open, respectful and very clear about what it is that you're trying to do. So I think in our practice what we've learned is that sometimes you as you say you get a GP who you think is going to be great but in fact they they start doing certain behaviors that don't align and then that then sort of creates friction for everybody else classic example for us was a lovely GP who was working with us but she didn't if a patient didn't turn up on time she wouldn't see them right And so if they turned up, you know, 20 minutes late, they would get turned away. And that's just not my particular ethos. The community that we work in, if you did that, there's a lot of patients who would just never get seen because a lot of the struggles that they have with life and around the abuse that they've suffered, a lot of that is then around some of that inability to just be Quite where you and I might like them to be in terms of being on time, et cetera, et cetera. And if I don't display some flexibility and empathy around that, then that means that we don't care for that community, which goes back to your comment about, well, what are the values of the practice? And for us, it was about serving a community that the social determinants of health were much more challenging than for others, and therefore those things needed to be accommodated for. You know, you can't obviously accommodate them out of space when you're running a, an appointment system. So, again, it's about how do you have a system that can be flexible enough and running as a GP flexible enough to be able to sort of move up and down and around that. And, you know, we've learnt that doctors will come. But I think it's a teaching practice, actually. It's been really a good way of helping us sort it out because when we're teaching doctors, we can very much talk about all of those things that you've been talking about and it's very clear to find what what it is that those doctors might want or not want. Excuse my barking doc in the background. We have a theme of dogs, <laughs> Todd, just to let you know. <laughs> uh, you can't hear it? Okay, that's good. The back to the teaching registrars it's very clear, you know, if doctors will come to our practice and they'll say, I don't want to practice this sort of medicine. You know, it's too complex. Um, there's too many things I want to practice medicine that is much more about throughput than you know chronic disease and that's fine we all need to, to know what it is that we're wanting to do in that whereas for me I love the chronic complex medicine I love the ability to actually feel that you're part of a family and helping them navigate a path way of care that improves their health versus the sort of the, the throughput that for me is le- much less satisfying. And it's about recognising that we are all different. So having those conversations, recognising it fairly early on, what it looks like so that you don't get have painful relationships.
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the the nature of general practice sometimes mitigates against us, us taking sensible courses of action. So, for example, you know, most GPs don't spend a lot of time getting their recruiting right. And actually kind of uh, having a clear, without a clear value proposition, it's much harder to promote your practice to others because it's harder for people to know what it's like. You know, ideally, if you look at really good advertising or marketing, you get a fairly good emotional sense of what something is like before you engage with it. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's a car or a holiday or, you know, something for the kitchen or, or, you know, food. The really good marketing is about the emotive elements, so it's that you kind of understand something before you get there. Because all we're trying to do is find that group of the population that that resonates with our values, and you actually don't care about the rest. You know, I, I don't imagine that that, you know, the guys at Mercedes Benz are particularly worried about what Toyota's doing or, or Hyundai. You know, they're worrying about how can they serve their customers better. And in our case, you know, how do we serve our patients more effectively, and how do we build teams with with great diversity of common values well once you're clear on what those are it it makes it much easier to pick up the people that aren't really aligned i I don't find i actually go to many face-to-face meetings that aren't successful now because i just weed them out before i get there you know I, i don't end up ending in that circumstance and that's the um that's the main area that i think is important is you know make sure that you spend the time at the front end and that, that's what too often happens is people are so happy that somebody's applied to work in their practice, they say yes. And that's why I ended up with two of the highest billing GPs that I had to say goodbye to because they didn't, they should never have have started with us.
0: Yeah, which it's interesting, isn't it, it's that whole thing. And I think that for us that where we've had our GPs come from is pretty much through teaching. Right. So, you know, we've always been willing to... Take on teaching whether or not it meant that we had GPs employed out of it, but through that, it has meant that we've had a ready stream of of doctors who are already aligned with our values, know what they're getting themselves in for, so to speak, and we know what we're getting ourselves in for. So it makes the whole sort of thing about will this work much less well, much easier to answer because they've worked with us we've worked with them and that alignment has already happened. And you know, when you're taking on a registrar for six months, if it's a disaster, it's only six months, but it gives you six months to know, is this someone you want to, you know, you can take on down the track Um, yeah, so it's for us, that's been the way that we we do that.
1: And I think if you're engaging doctors earlier in their careers, you know, there's an opportunity for them to flex and find out exactly what it is that they're comfortable with in any case. And so there's much more opportunity. People often become a bit more set in their style and the cadence of their day uh, as time goes on. It doesn't mean people can't change, but uh, but I think having people in there that, that are very early in their careers, it's great for them too. you know, they get to have a, a taste of different styles and find out uh, which one it is that, that they want to build a career out of.
0: Yeah, and I think that's why the model that the college sort of currently, you know, adopts of making you do six months at different practices has come from. Mind you, I think there's limitations around that, because as you and I would know, six months isn't really long enough to really understand the joy of continuity of care. You're just starting to get a touch of it as it might, you know, then you have to move on to another practice. But you can hopefully see what it looks like in the patients who are coming back to see the other the doctors in the practice yeah, and I think part of that you know that the, the continuity care thing I think is an underpinning of quality as you were talking about some of the other issues about what does a quality practice and I suppose I would then throw at you that obviously that part of what I see and i would be interested in you is that the quality of care is around having a patient population who actually says this is my general practice i love it and i'm coming back to it and hence the service that you design is about making them want to come back
1: yeah absolutely i I think you know there's two sides that i think the first one is there's no doubt that knowing your patient cohort well allows you to kind of jump back into establishing rapport more uh, rapidly more effectively more deeply and building on the therapeutic alliance because you can kind of take that approach at one consult and this is typically with lifestyle change, you might plant the seed and then at, at subsequent visits, you're kind of applying a little bit of water metaphorically to that idea and, and hopefully allowing it to germinate. So there's there's no doubt and the evidence is very clear that helps. And on the other side of that is, I think one way you can determine quality practices is uh, at that point in time that, that patients do need to see another GP, either because somebody's not available or... or you know, it was expeditious to see a different doctor. How easily they can pick up the trail from their colleague is important, and I, and I personally enjoy when my patients end up seeing another doctor because it, it is quite literally a, a new set of eyes. And now the caveat there is that it's within the clinic, so they don't have to go through the whole taking a history, etc. Again, the so quality of your notes often determines how easily you can kick off with the current problem. But that's also a measure, I think, you know, the fact that your notes are being reviewed by others and and being used by others uh, is an important uh, important step in quality. I, I think one thing we all need to become really good at is, I think this is a really important leadership trait, is just picking people up when they've done something well. You know, it's pretty easy to shoot an email off to somebody in the middle of a consult if they've picked up something really cool or they've, you know, found a new way to manage a problem that has escaped your Abilities, etc. You know, just something that you think. You know what? That's really awesome. And I'll often excuse myself in the middle of the consult and just say to the patient, "Listen, I'm just going to send an email to the doctor that you saw last time or that you saw for this problem and explain what's happened and just give me 20 seconds to do that. Otherwise, I may forget." Patients like it because they kind of like to know that you're thinking somewhat. And I think it's really important. You know, a lot of what we do is dealing with complaints. You know, you don't often get to deal with the happy side of it. So, you know, we need to correct for that, I think, and make sure that we're sharing that with our colleagues and hopefully making somebody smile and be a bit proud about their work. That's really the reinforcing habit. You know, that's what we do with parenting with kids and I think we should do the same thing with colleagues.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, I think you've sort of picked on some really nice things, which is, I agree with you, the joy of that sort of continuity of care, sharing patients, because it is so nice when someone else puts fresh eyes on someone that you've been seeing for many years and either picks something up or makes a comment or just allows you to sort of stand back and and do it but i think that whole team based approach to saying we share it we share our patients even though we primarily own our own little subpopulation means that you are accountable to your notes and there is that benefit and again this goes i'll take this back to the te- the value of having you know registrars or medical students is that I know that there are people reviewing my notes I need them therefore to be really good communication handover and that whole concept of clinical handover you know if someone needs to pop in look after my patient when I'm not there that everything is there for them to be able to do it safely and without error because things are correct and up to date and again that for me is sort of what I view as being sort of quality is, you know, is someone able to come in and do that? And if they're not, then I need to do a better job. Yeah, and
1: it's it's really an ad hoc audit function, isn't it? Having other people kind of seeing your patient from time to time. I think, you know, all of us in general practice have seen patients that have been uh, the patient of a GP for a long time. More typically, this is people working in isolation, I think, and I don't mean to pick on any particular group, but sometimes what happens is you see patients that you think, yeah, no one's really ever sat back or offered a critique or a reflection upon the way a patient's been managed. And, and it can go fairly wrong if, if, you know, you're not in that mode of being fairly self-reflective and being a healthy sceptic. You know, the difference um, between a sceptic and a cynic being that, at least as a sceptic, you doubt your own thoughts as well as others. You know, the cynics are always doubting everyone else's. So I think as long as we kind of have that healthy scepticism as well, that we may have missed something, we may have made an assumption that's a flawed assumption. It's kind of that dissonance between having confidence and and a little skerrick of doubt without driving yourself insane.
0: Absolutely. And, I mean, I love being accountable too, quite honestly. I like being able to, you know, think about, oh, gosh, someone is going to read these and am I actually doing the best thing and what am I actually thinking is going on so that I sort of – you know, having that little, as you say, that audit button going ting, 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 ting. And so if you're sort of setting up practices that have that as part of the ethos, you know, the these, the patients you see are patients of the practice that we all work toward together. So your notes need to reflect that as well. is much better for the patients.
1: I think it's also wise to, to assume in the current environment that you know, patients are going to get access to the notes. I mean, they already can, but in future iterations, I'm sure there will be shared note keeping. So it kind of behoves us, behooves us to make sure that we are writing our notes in a manner that not only our colleagues can read them and have a fair understanding about what you're thinking and, and why you're doing what you're doing, but also our patients should. And, and my practice has always been with referrals, for example, unless it was about the patient's privacy, really private matters such as childhood sexual abuse, etc. My habit was always to give the referral to the patient open and, and the assumption was that they were interested in reading it anyway. And I'd just highlight the addressee and say, this is who you have to call and uh, and you can organise that yourself. Just because I figured...
0: Absolutely. Yep. I mean, I, yeah, I'm just 100% agreeing with you, Todd. You know, that whole this is a patient's record, you know, as so I say to my patients, well, you're the expert in you, not me. So you you know, am I putting in the right information? And are we making sure that the specialist knows what they need to know?
1: Absolutely. I think one of the simplest quality measures, and this is this is something that I often try and coach in, in GPs, is that you very rarely have a supply and demand match in, in any business, and general practice is the same, there's a mismatch. So when there's a demand excess so you've got more patients than you can cater to there will sometimes be a drop-off in quality and it might necessarily might not necessarily be the quality of your work but it may just be you know the opportunity to review preventative health for example that drops off so so it might not be quality as such it might be how comprehensive the consult is may, may change and you then you then have a responsibility when the supply demand flicks the other way which is often relates to those waves of consulting, could be times of the day, days of the week, certainly months of the year. And at the times when the demand is somewhat reduced, you need to make sure that patients go out the door with every stone turned over. So they've quite literally had their charts, you know, polished to perfection and quality is is never an issue then. I think you need to have that ability to change gears because that's the way the world works in anything. And you you need to uh, make sure that you defer things to times that you can give them appropriate attention. So I I think that's an important skill set.
0: I think that's great advice too, Todd, that whole thing about use the time you've got. You know, it's like, okay, you've got a 15-minute time slot. This has taken you seven minutes, then use the rest of it to get the rest of the file and all the other opportunities covered. Well, that's what yeah. i hearing you say. Well, my right? favourite
1: hack with that is I use best practice, but only it matters what you use is, is I just click print full health summary. So it, it's quite literally the summary page and I'll just give that to patients and say, look, um, this is what your file currently says, uh, your relevant medical conditions, medications and allergies. I want you to go through it and tell me if there's anything on there that shouldn't be on there, anything that's missing that should be on there or anything you'd like corrected and I'll just give that to them. And I might highlight a couple of things that, that either don't make sense or I'm not sure about and tell them when they come back, when they make their next appointment, then to bring their homework in and we'll correct it in the system and then they know that it's right. And then I'll give them a copy of the new version and get them to do the same thing again until I'm happy that, that it reflects their wishes as well as an accurate reflection of the of the patient's medical history. It's a really easy thing to do. Patients love taking something out. You know, there's good evidence that that's the case. Hence, why we give physical scripts, etc. So, it's a really easy way of just getting patients engaged in their care. And again, they're going to
0: And it's not a bad way, Todd. Can I say of getting an accurate, ready file ready for uploading? Once we actually start uploading more records into the My space. Health record space, given that the health summary, by and large, is exactly what gets Absolutely. uploaded into the yeah. My Health record. So at that point, because you and I, I think, could keep chatting for hours because we Shared enjoy, passion. you know, inspire some good conversations here, I would suggest that we might need to come invite you to come back and talk a little bit more about some of these things. But I'm really appreciative of you throwing out some really good thoughts about why people might want to run practices, what some of the things to think about in running a great practice and what are some of the elements in making those practices a high quality practice. So thanks, Todd. But before you go, do you have a clinical pearl that you'd like to share with everybody else? Uh,
1: Well, I reckon the one that made me smile the most was this is a non-medical conference. And I, I was chatting to a guy and I thought, man, this guy looks like the photographic example of acromegaly. And, uh, and, and I shook this guy's hand and it was like my hand was in a, a baseball mitt. And so I said to the guy, I said, look, I didn't know him actually at the time I just met him. And I wrote down on a piece of paper, I said, look, I don't know you, but I suspect you have this condition. I wrote it down on a piece of paper. I go, said, look, I recommend you go and see your GP and ask about it. And I, I saw him again at, at another conference. It was a series of conferences. Came back and he said, "Mate, thanks for that. That is indeed what I have got, and I've I've now seen the specialist. I'm I'm undertaking treatment. And one of my best friends is an endocrinologist, and they're really pissed off they missed it.
0: <laughs> they were probably too close to him, it's weren't definitely. they? Whereas, <laughs> um, thanks, Todd. So I'm actually going to just share a um a resource that just recently came across my notice and I don't know I mean it's not so useful to others outside of New South Wales but maybe some will know so it's a website that actually gives you resources for services that New South Wales does um, and it's called the Human Services Network and so it's hsnet.nsw.gov.au but as I said what it provides is you know like that whole list of all the patient resources and services that you could possibly dream of are all on that website and maybe there's a similar one in victoria queensland adelaide i south australia west australia i'm not sure but for those of you in new south wales it's not a bad website awesome so Todd, go out and continue to do the good work of improving the joy of those who own practices and I know you have a challenge of taking on a new practice uh, at the moment and hopefully that will really both be successful but also give you some enjoyment and, and love in what you're doing. Thanks very much, Charlotte. Have
1: a great evening.